Top shot. Diving play by Ozzy. Long throw. You wouldn't believe it. Tommy with a drive. Deep center field. Away back. Goal. And Scott Rowland hits one into deep left field. Back at the wall. A leap. And a catch. Andy Chavez takes a home run and turns it into a double play. Into deep left center from Mitchell. Hey folks, welcome back to Coax Baseball. My name is Travis Laver, and I'm here with Nathaniel Brady. That's totally in your name. Yes, that is absolutely my full name. No notes. Exactly. Scott. Scott uh, has a new fancy microphone. I so should sound you can much hear better his now. Voice in higher definition. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're doing. We're doing the Red Sox-Yankees. We figured we had to get this one out of the way so that we could uh, never have these two teams on again. It uh, was a necessary evil. Uh, yeah, they're important to the story of baseball in this particular time. They were really important to the story of baseball, so really we needed to do one pretty early on. And uh, yeah, so we did one from, what was the date? For this thing, August 31st, 2003? That is correct. I would have been in... How old was I in 2003? Uh, fifth grade. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, this is where our age difference comes into play, because I was uh, definitely in my senior year. Actually, no, sorry. I was days away from going to the University of Windsor, my first year of university. So there you go. So we did this. We did this game, August 31st. So this is a new one because we did... We've done different times of the year. We haven't really done one late in the year. We're no. at the beginning of a pennant race. Yeah, this and we is haven't the done one this late yet. Latest by two thousands one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was a, that was a good choice. Plus, uh, as we'll get into in a second, the pitching matchup was pretty compelling. So why don't I turn it over to you and you can do the rundown of the the narratives and the lineups and the highlights and all of that. Sure. So as uh, you had already so eloquently put, uh, this game took place on August 31st of 2003, kind of right in the in the meat of the you know evil empire versus the you know downtrodden sore loser Red Sox, uh, you know because that narrative totally you know held up over time. Anyway, not bitter about that. Um, so coming into this game, the Yankees were 83 and 52. The Red Sox were 78 and 58. Uh, they were holding the top two spots in the uh, AL East at the time. And actually, if I remember right, I think the Mariners had a better record at this point in time. But as they were, they were ahead to... by half a game. Yeah, a game in the wild card. But because they were the Mariners, uh, as they are wont to do, they faltered down the stretch and missed the playoffs entirely. And the Red Sox took that wild card spot from them. And uh, Yankees and Red Sox went on to have quite a memorable ALCS that year, as I'm sure everyone listening to this was aware of. You had the Aaron Bleep and Boone home run. Uh, you know, all that good fun stuff. But in this particular game, the Yankees came into Boston. Their starting lineup that day was uh, Derek Jeter leading off at shortstop, batting second, Nick Johnson and designated hitter, batting third, Jason Giambi at first base, hitting cleanup, Bernie Williams in center field, batting fifth, Hideki Matsui in left field, batting sixth, Jorge Posada at catcher, Batting 7th, the aforementioned Aaron Boone at 3rd base. Batting 8th, Juan Rivera in right field. And bringing up the rear, Enrique Wilson uh, playing 2nd base. 
And then for the Red Sox, we had uh, Bill Miller leading off, Todd Walker at second base, forgot to mention Miller at third. Uh, then we have Nomar Garciaparra at shortstop, batting third, David Ortiz, a designated hitter, hitting cleanup. Kevin Millar at first base, hitting fifth. Trot Nixon in right field, hitting sixth. Dave McCarty in left, batting seventh. Doug Mirabelli at catcher, batting eighth. And Gabe Kapler in center field, batting ninth. Funnily enough, both of these lineups would feature future managers uh, that are currently managing today. Don't know how common that is. To get into the starting matchups, as Travis mentioned, it was indeed quite compelling. For the Yankees, you had the infamous uh, but ever-talented Roger Clemens. And for the Red Sox, you had uh, knuckleball extraordinaire Tim Wakefield. Both would go into the seventh inning. They would go six, go into the seventh. Or no, I take that back. Wakefield would go six even. Clemens would go six and uh, two-thirds. And if we look at the play-by-play here, just a quick rundown of that. So, as I said, uh, 2003 was a... Uh, fun and compelling season of baseball. Uh, obviously, you had the rivalry going between the Red Sox and the Yankees, kind of the apex of that, or maybe the penultimate year of that before the uh, you know infamous 2004 season. Kind of interesting side note here for both these teams. The lineups, both of them had several guys out who normally were in the lineup that were part of those teams. Uh, Johnny Damon was out for the Red Sox today. Uh, and um, Jason Veritek was actually getting a day off, but he did come in to pinch hit later. And then on the Yankees side, um, Alfonso Soriano started out of the game, but then came in and subbed for Derek Jeter later in the game. And uh, yeah, I guess that was the only one. I guess it's it's weird. I remember this era of the Yankees with A-Rod and Sheffield and some of the other players that they added after this season, so it was weird yeah. not seeing them in the lineup. Uh, but anyway, not to dwell too much on that. Going into the actual play-by-play of the game. So in the top of the first, uh, Wakefield got Jeter to ground out, but then uh, Nick Johnson was hit by a pitch. Jason Giambi drew a walk. Uh, Bernie Williams then singled, scoring Johnson and sending Giambi to second. Uh, Hideki Matsui grounded out. And then Jorge Posada and Aaron Boone both hit back-to-back singles to score uh, Giambi and Williams, respectively. That would bring the Yankees up 3-0. See here, Wakefield did get out of the inning, uh, actually on a pickoff. He picked off Enrique Wilson from first. Bottom of the first, Clemens would send the Red Sox down in order, getting everyone to ground out. Game would stay pretty quiet there for the most part. It would stay 3-0 until the third. Dave McCarty would lead off the inning with a single. Doug Miller belly would double. Clemens would throw a passed ball that would allow McCarty to score and send Mirabelli to third. Gabe Kapler would pop out, Bill and Miller would ground out, Todd Walker would then single, scoring Mirabelli, and then Nomar would fly out to center field. In the fourth, Wakefield would allow a double to right field off the bat of Jorge Posada, but would allow, I should say, limit the damage from there, uh, striking out Juan Rivera and Enrique Wilson after getting Boone to pop out. And then the game stayed 4-2. Okay. So then, in the top of the fifth, Derek Jeter would single. Nick Johnson would also single, scoring Jeter. And then Hideki Matsui would reach on an error after Bernie Williams would walk. That would then score Williams and bring the score to 5-2. And then Clemens would send down the side. 
Wakefield would also send down the side, so then that would go into the six. Clemens would send down the side again. Then Wakefield would not get an out in the six. Uh, he would allow another single to Jeter, and then the would seventh. be replaced... Or no, I'm sorry, yes, this is a seventh. Uh, he would be replaced yes. by Scott Sauerbeck, who really did not pitch well at all. Uh, he would hit Nick Johnson with a pitch, his second of the game. He would get Giambi to strike out, but then uh, would allow a wild pitch to Bernie Williams, who would then be intentionally walked. Uh, Hideki Matsui would ground out, but that would allow another run to score. Actually, two runs to score. He would then walk Jorge Posada. Byung-Hung Kim would come in and allow a single to Aaron Boone, which would score another run. That would make it 8-2, and it would stay 8-2 through the... Actually, no, it would not stay 8-2. In the seventh, uh, Trot Nixon would draw a walk. Dave McCarty would single. Doug Mirabelli would strike out. Gabe Kapler would draw a walk. Antonio Ozuna would then finally relieve Clemens, who would go 6.2. Bill Miller would single, which would allow both Trot Nixon and uh, Dave McCarty to score. I keep wanting to say Kirk McCarty, different McCarty. But then... Dave get... McCarty is the most like standard white guy outfielder yeah, of all time. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> uh, but then uh, Gabe White would get uh, Jason Veritak to fly out, who was pinch hitting at that point. Um, and then the rest of the game, there's not a whole lot that would happen. Then until the bottom of the ninth, Red Sox would make it interesting. Leading off the inning with two singles, Kapler and Miller would then ground out and pop out, but then Veritek would draw a walk to load the bases for Nomar. Uh, Mariano Rivera would then come in and shut them down, so that would end the game uh, 8-4 in favor of the Yankees. So yeah, it was... It wasn't as exciting as some of your typical Red Sox and Yankees fare. Um, you did have a little bit of back-and-forth action, but not nearly as much as some other games uh, have had between these two franchises. I guess what were what were any uh, particular points that stood out to you from this game, Travis? I know I've got a couple that I'd like to touch on, but I figure I would open up the floor to you first since I've been rambling here for the last uh, ten minutes or so. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this it was interesting because this was like kind of before the rivalry really blew up. I mean, yes. it had been a rivalry for a lot of years, and and it's obviously the Red Sox and Yankees. But this particular iteration, you know, we're in two months or not even in a month and a half during the ALCS was the whole infamous Don Zimmer charging at Pedro Martinez yep. debacle. So this was kind of right before, and then, of course, A-Rod getting added the next year to kind of push that into high gear in 2004. But this is kind of right before that. I don't think these teams particularly liked each other, but they weren't at each other's throats. I don't think there was anything really major going on in terms of drama right, before yeah. this. That, that 2004 season was when it really all kind of spilled over, because during the regular season even, you had uh, A-Rod and Veritek get into the shoving match. Uh, obviously yeah. you had uh, Zimmer and Pedro Martinez during the ALCS. Um, didn't yeah, Clemens... That was, that was 03, though. Was, was that, I thought that was 03 where that or maybe, happened. Or no, you're right, that was 03. Yeah, that was 03. It was you're before right. A-Rod yeah. was on the team. Yeah, A-Rod yeah. entered into it Arod entered into it, and he wanted to kind of make a name for himself. Yeah, he like, wanted. Hey, I'm one of you guys. Yeah, he wanted to insert he, himself into the rivalry. Yeah, which is interesting because he was almost a Red Sox, right? And he actually yes. made public comments about how he wanted to play for the Red Sox. And then, so when he came to the Yankees, I think there was a lot of side eyeing from at least fans. So probably the players probably didn't. The care, original but. trade, and I know a lot of people have done like OOTP sims of this, was Arod was going to go to the Sox. 
Um, I believe Manny was going to go to the Rangers. Nomar was going to go to the White Sox. Maglio Ordonez would have gone back to the Red Sox. Lester would have gone to the, uh, I think the White Sox or the Rangers maybe. I can't remember which he was going to go to. But then the big one was apparently Cano was going to go back as a as a piece, or it was it was Cano or Joaquin Arias who I think did get moved in the final trade. Um, yeah, but and the Red Sox were going to take on uh, the the Rangers were going to keep a lot of the money. Yes, because like, what that deal like the Rangers what scuttled it? Pay. The players' union scuttled it because A Rod was going to agree to be paid less than what the contract had originally been yeah. signed for. Because because it wasn't a matter of just like retention, like they literally like lowered the value of his contract, which is yeah bizarre to even think which about. Obviously, the union's yeah. not going to do no, like, of course not. Goddamn loot. No, that not. that sets a horrible <laughs> precedent. Uh, wouldn't surprise me. I, I think Arod strikes me as the kind of guy that would uh, that would sell out his union brothers. Oh, he absolutely would. Vibe, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if he's on the strike line, he's he's sneaking around and talking to management. You know. Um, but yeah, so and then the, of course the trade that did happen was the Yankees taking on pretty much all the money mm-hmm. and only only quote unquote giving back Alfonso Soriano and Joaquin Arias. Right, and Arias was supposed to be the big prospect who didn't really pan out. Yeah, Soriano played a couple seasons and then was traded, but he wasn't all that good with the Rangers. No, he was, he was not. Okay. He was just kind of there. Yeah, but anyway, we're not we're not. This is in two thousand four, so mm-hmm. we don't need to talk about that. But no. uh, I like to do my my rundown of of um, Hall of Famers in the game. So yes. in this one, we actually had th- we had three appear: uh, Derek Jeter, David Ortiz, and Mariano Rivera. Mm-hmm. Probably again, this is one of those things where maybe we should call up like the Hall of Stats or something. So yeah, that just like because like it, I get it. Like Roger Clemens is a real big piece of shit. And again, we don't need to go into why, although I will be posting stories in the show notes like I did last or two episodes ago um, with uh, Omar Vizquel and Robbie Alomar. Real piece of shit. Just, and this isn't about steroids, obviously. It's about the shitty things he did in his life, and he's done a lot of them. And, uh, but like, he's really good. <laughs> yes. And yeah, he may, he probably doesn't deserve to be honored in the Hall of Fame, but... There's no, like, he is the quintessential Hall of Fame pitcher on talent. He right? he is so. probably the best pitcher that we've seen, just like as far as career volume, like in the twentieth, twenty first century. Like he was, yeah. He, he's he's arguably the best modern pitcher we've ever seen. Like the guys he comps to are like Walter Johnson and Cy Young. Like he was insanely good. Yeah, and just. A pleasure to watch pitch, you know. Again, it's like I'm trying to separate because <laughs> mm-hmm. he is so much fun to watch. When I think of quintessential power pitcher, I think of Roger Clemens. Yes. When I think of the sort of hard fastball and the hammer curveball. I think of Roger Clemens. When I think of what pitching mechanics should look like, I think of Roger Clemens's mechanics. Yep, they were perfect. They were the same throughout his entire career, and you know they just absolutely was it like it's so you know some guys when you watch them pitch it's like unpleasurable to watch them it's like oh god that looks like it's either painful it's like these herky-jerky motions mike clevenger another so really smooth. shitty pitcher <laughs> well yeah another really shitty person yeah just to, i don't particularly like watching blake snell pitch either just the way he moves just weirds yeah. me yeah but like roger clemens was just like just looked good he looked mm-hmm. so smooth doing it like the mechanics were perfect 
just quintessential capital P pitcher would absolutely, I think, be in the Hall of Fame if it weren't for the shitty things he did because he was starting to get some momentum. Him and him and Bonds both. I actually think this. This is a hot. Here's your hot take for you. I think both of them would have gotten the Hall of Fames and the Hall of Fame steroids be damned if it didn't come out in the last couple of years that they were on the ballot that they were huge pieces of shit. Yeah, and like that. That makes they were sense close. To they me. got to like they still got to like sixty five, sixty eight percent. They were pretty damn close. It was really just about, I think the last two years, they might have had the momentum to just eke in there. And I think there were a lot of people who previously had voted for them on a stats level, not caring about the steroids. But then when all the things started to come out about both of them and their sort of interactions with women, um, that knocked them down. It lost yep. a lot of votes. I think yep. like, I really think they'd both be in if it weren't for that. Well, so and I think a lot scale, of it kind of too, fucked himself. Yeah, was the timing of uh, everything that went down with Schilling. Because I think because people were going back and, you know, rescinding their votes for Schilling, that then caused them to look back at others. And, you know, Clemens and Bonds obviously were the two probably biggest offenders. And I think that mixed with the steroid noise, like they just, they weren't going to get in. And I honestly, I don't know if we're ever going to see them get in uh, as long as the Veterans Committee continues to be like just cronyism at its worst. Which in this case, again, like, should they be in the Hall of Fame? As long as there's a character clause on the ballot, I don't know if they should be. But um, yeah, it's I don't I don't see either of them getting in. And like you said, it was yeah. it was interesting because they were definitely trending in that direction as the kind of nerd stat head voters took over. But uh, yeah, just the the off the field baggage was just too much. Yeah. So should like I say. Should be if three Hall of Famers and four Hall of Stats guys, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure what the Hall of Stats. They might have Jorge Posada in there too, because he was definitely, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of like Hall of Very Good guys in this game too. I think that that's the we've seen yeah, more Hall Posada, of Famers in a game before. Posada was a really good catcher, a uh, really good offensive catcher. I'm just gonna su- say he's good at hitting. I'm not yeah, sure he was good at catching. Yeah, I was just gonna say because his. <laughs> Because I, I just have his B-Ref page up currently, uh, 42.7 career war. Um, so, but I know, always think catchers get underrated a bit by war, Yes, too. So I, I agree, like... too. But in his case, potentially overrated, because I don't know how good his receiving or framing numbers are. I've never looked that closely yeah, at them. And baseball ref- does baseball reference to framing? Or is no, it, it does not. And, it does uh, not. It's fan yeah. graphs and uh, BP that does it. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Posada is, and this is the thing, like, yeah, I'm. he was not a good catcher in terms of, like, the catch-and-throw stuff, and I don't think he was a good framer, although, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not looking at the Fangrass page right now to see that, but I'm assuming he wasn't, because I think that the narrative was that he was just so obviously bad at it. <laughs> but he, he stuck around and caught for, like, 15 years. He played until he was 40. So, like... And he caught until he was 40. It's not like, like he was doing a lot more DHing in those last couple of years, but he was still catching. Yep. He was still catching in games. And I think that as long as a team record, especially a team like the Yankees, because it's not like they were dumb. We can get into the whole Sabermetrics 1.0, which both of these teams are really examples of. Yes. Um, Posada stuck around for so long and played so long at catcher. The Yankees never really tried to get a better catcher. They never, that tells me something. And and it's one of those things that with catchers, even if with framing and everything else, it's really hard to tell by the numbers, how valuable they are, because really a lot of their value, maybe most of their value is in how they call a game and how they interact with pitchers. 
how if they're able to get the most out of their pitchers and from all of those aspects Posada ranks like among the very best of all time in terms of his ability to call a game his ability to calm down his pitchers and work with them legendary like Yadier Molina level level yes uh on that on that thing and I think that if if he wasn't good at that, if that, or if that wasn't, if the Yankees didn't determine that that wasn't valuable, then they wouldn't have let him catch. They would have traded him. They would have got a different catcher because as great as he was offensively, he's not like you know when he's at first base, he's not that good. You know, right. like he's yeah. an okay offensive player, uh, but as a catcher, great, sure. But uh, no, it, so I think, I, I think says it, something too. Same with Piazza, right? Piazza's another one who, oh has, yeah, retrospectively has good framing numbers, but he's another one that I think like. He caught for so long. It's hard. It's hard to suggest that he wasn't good at something. Well, Piazza also could have actually like moved to a corner outfielder, first base spot, and hit well enough to justify it. Like he was by far the best ever hitting catcher we've seen, and outside of and a it couple... might have made him even better as a hitter, right? Because he yeah. would have had the rigors of catching all the time. Yeah. Like who knows? No, how, he was he was so good is. at his peak. The only person who was even close to him was like johnny bench and it was like a couple seasons early in his career like by the time the big red machine was really going he wasn't hitting the same way he'd been earlier on so but anyway um where do you stand uh not to jump in here but where do you stand on jason giambi i'm curious as a hall of famer or just in general uh i guess as all of it because like he because i another guy that strikes me as a hall of very good you know, like he's, Giambi, Giambi just... is so he's he's one of my personal favorites. Uh, just I I liked him growing up. Um, I've kind of liked the you know the Oakland A surfer dude persona he had before he yeah. cut all his hair off when he went to New York. Um, but then he grew it all back when he went to Colorado. He did, end, and so. he had a gray beard, <laughs> and it was great. Like I, I I really like like Oakland A's Jason Giambi and like late career old man Jason Giambi like. Uh, obviously he's he he falls short by war yes like he's around the 50 war mark 45 to 50 war which is which i think is well short Mm -hmm. about 10 war short of where you start to think about a guy Mm -hmm. usually um and but he had a whole he's like uh chase utley in that way but chase utley had a much higher peak but that that range of what is it 1999 through 2003 really even you could say 2005 he was injured in in 2004 um there's like a, definitely a hall of fame peak yes but he i would was agree with that basically like it's always said that like hall of famers are made in their 30s mm-hmm. because that's you know they go from being they might have a great peak but if they can't sustain it into their late 30s they're not going to be hall of well famer. the interesting thing with didn't. giambi was his he continued to be an on-base machine but his contact mm-hmm. fell way off uh, from, I mean, just simply looking at batting average even, which obviously isn't the whole story, but from 1999 through 2002, he hit 326, and then after that, he would never hit 300 again in his career, the highest being he hit 271 in 2005. So it, it's yeah, interesting because he, he really turned into like a three-true outcomes hitter. Yeah. Yeah, it's also peak steroid era batting yes. averages. I mean, again, I don't like calling it the steroid era because there was clearly something sure, else sure, sure. going on there. But, but that was where you know the league, the league, league or the league average was like approaching oh, like sure. two ninety two or two. But even if you look at the, like even if you look at his rate stats, like there's a drop off, like what yeah. what his numbers he was putting up equated to. But the other thing too, it wasn't just the batting average; like his slugging fell off too. 
Like, cause he he had a couple yeah. more seasons where he hit thirty plus homers, but even with that, the because that was all he was doing. Because before that, he was hitting doubles, uh, you know, just racking up extra base hits. After that, he turned into kind of like walk home run or like like basically like a better version of Adam Dunn almost. Um, yeah, yeah, and I mean, like, so this this particular two thousand three season was a was an interesting one for him mm-hmm. because. I mean, this is something he would do a lot in his career, where the batting average is like not all that impressive, like two fifty mm-hmm. below average. But again, like it's one of the—he's kind of the perfect player to exemplify why we almost shouldn't even look at batting average. Right. Like, yep, it doesn't really tell you anything because if you look at the four twelve on base percentage yes. and the five twenty seven slugging percentage, you get an idea of like this guy doesn't have to get singles exactly. Or yeah. he doesn't have to get singles at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 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 hitting the ball hard. And he's walking a ton, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he's striking out kind of a lot. I think they, they mentioned on the broadcast at this point he was second in the league in strikeouts, which is he, interesting because he only struck out twenty percent of the time. He would which now finish would be below average. Yeah, right? no, he would finish the year leading the league in strikeouts uh, with one forty. Yeah, twenty point three percent clip too, which is just again how yeah. baseball is different. Mm-hmm. Like yep. <laughs> now that would be like you'd, we'd be talking about him how oh he only strikes out twenty percent of the time. That's pretty mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Uh, and he now was we walking have guys almost twenty percent like of the time pushing too. Forty, which is insane. Yeah, this particular season, like he did have uh, one season where in two thousand with Oakland, where he walked over twenty percent of the time. This yeah. season, he walked almost nineteen percent. So, it, it's uh, he he's sort of a, a the the highest end, and this would be a good segue. Watch me work here. Hmm? The highest end of the sort of Moneyball or Sabermetrics 1.0 mm. uh, player, right? Like he's the he's the premier. He's the guy who like walks and bombs at elite levels, right? Mm-hmm. Fuck defense, who cares? Right. If he can walk and he can hit home runs, get him in a lineup. And the the dollar store version of that was the guy hitting right before him, uh, Nick Johnson. Yes. Who, I, I mean. I feel like anyone who's into Sabermetrics is going to remember exactly who Nick Johnson was because he was the darling of Sabermetrics 1.0 because he was the, the, the sort of the guy you look at and go, well, his numbers don't look that great, but man, the walk rates, holy crap, can he ever walk? And like he mm-hmm. always had this smooth swing and he's a bad body first baseman, sure, but you know, he. Well, didn't walk, he, man, the walk didn't rates he have insane. a season in the minors with a 500 on base, and that was what really turned everyone on to him and why people drooled over him for so many years? Yeah, Wasn't that, that part I'm of it? I'm not sure about. I'd have to look, I'll have to see if I can pull that I'd up. I'd have to look at Baseball Reference to well, see I don't know, that. Well, no, he, but... he was also one of the more, I guess, quote-unquote famous, like, like, darling prospect busts, right? Yeah, but, but so here's the thing. He was a bust because he got hurt a lot, right? Yes, no, like and, the, the, the Yan- skills the Yankees, were there. The Yankees yeah. never, even though the Yankees were sort of really great at identifying these players, uh, they were still a little bit behind some other teams at this point. This is like kind of right before they really adopted yes. uh, sabermetrics. And they didn't really realize what they had in him, I think. Because, uh, I mean, they traded him that offseason. So this 2003 season for Nick, Nick Johnson was kind of his breakout year. He had really struggled to that point a couple... He, uh, in the previous two seasons when he got called up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it really struggles maybe overrating it, but for a first baseman, a guy you expect, first baseman DH, you expect him to hit. And he was, you know, a league average hitter the year before and well below that in his in a short stint in 2001. But in 2003, he broke out at 143 WRC plus and 422 on base percentage. Yeah, that's really And good. it was one of those things where it's like, he did that in 96 games and got hurt. And then the Yankees traded him to Montreal after that, uh, 
in the Javier Vasquez deal. Um, and then he, you know, like I say, he went on to have some some good seasons with Washington, but just hurt all the time yeah. and out of baseball by like 33. Yep. So, but uh, but just a, a really fun player, like a really, I don't know when I when I think of Nick Johnson, I think of my own sort of journey through baseball and learning about <laughs> the importance of sabermetrics and on base percentage and things like that. Like he, he to me is one of those guys that sort of was the perfect example of what guys like Billy Bean, we're not selling jeans here, which I know was like overplayed and all of that crap. But Nick Johnson was kind of the perfect example of that where it's like, so he doesn't look like I a baseball did find player. It. He, so Nick you know, Johnson's 1999 season uh, when he was in the Yankees farm season at the farm system at double A, he hit 345, 525, uh, 548 uh, with a 123 to 88 walk to strikeout ratio. That was what people <laughs> yeah, were drooling absurd. over. He did yeah, that and in I mean, and even 132 this, games played that year. Even in this season, he walked more than he struck out, which mm-hmm. is something that he did a few times in his career. And, yes. And actually, in his in his total in his career, was, was uh, he struck out a, a little more. But, well, I mean, his career um, on base percentage across 10 years is 399. Like, he always yeah. got on base. It was just a matter of... He did. He, he only had uh, three seasons where he played over 130 games. Like, yeah, the exactly. dude just and could not stay healthy. Could not stay healthy, which which again maybe goes into one of the blind spots of Sabermetrics 1.0, which, again, I know they were explo- exploiting sort of market inefficiencies, but maybe a guy who isn't in great shape might not hold up over a whole season. Right. <laughs> Weird. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like, and not to say, I'm not, like, bagging on Nick Johnson for being out of shape or anything, but he didn't have the typical sort of uh, athlete body. And, no. And, that was a criticism of him, and I think unfairly sometimes guys get criticized for that. But sometimes, sometimes there's a reason for that, right? And and one of them is like, can this guy stay on the field? Is he going to be able to play 140 games in a year? And uh, he just couldn't. Nope. When he did, he was excellent. Yes, like excellent. But yeah, just couldn't do it. Can I talk and about Hideki Matsui? Oh, please do. Okay, so. I have always been fascinated by Japanese position players that have come over from uh, Japan to the States. Um, I do follow MPB, not nearly as much as MLB, because it's kind of hard to follow it when you're not actually in Japan. Um, thankfully, with the internet, that has become somewhat easier, but it, you don't have like the same level of stats tracking over here or uh, with those players. But it's always been fun to watch and see how well some of these guys do or don't translate uh, their skills from NPB to MLB. Um, I know the the long-standing line was, you know, oh, it's just, you know, a triple-A league, you know, it's, you know, the, the stuff they do over there doesn't count. Which I think is partially built into some uh, racism, maybe, a little bit, Uh but also, there definitely is... At least, at least into, like, American exceptionalism, yes. right? If, yes, yes. Which is, which is itself racist. I'm not saying it isn't. Right. Just, yeah, definitely that. And for sure. some of it also... Um, it's just that, like, people don't... Um, like, the talent pool certainly isn't as deep as it is over here. But Japan is probably, like, the biggest baseball country in the world. Like if not in the top two or three after, I don't know, probably one of the Latin American countries where it's so big. 
Um, or Korea. Yeah, Korea's up there it's pretty too. Pretty massive in Korea yep. too. But the I, it's I way def- bigger there than it is here. The like. <laughs> the gap between uh, MLB and MPB I think has uh, shrank by quite a bit, probably in the last decade or so. Um, oh yeah. I, I know I'm I'm very interested to see how uh, Seiya Suzuki does with the Cubs, um, as he was one of my favorite players to follow before he came over. But anyway, going back to Matsui. Um, he's probably the best Japanese position player that we've seen after Ichiro. Um, it's kind of, if you look at their career war output, you've got Ichiro, who's like heads and shoulders above everyone else. Then you've got Matsui. Uh, then probably Otani. Like, and actually to drop up, actually, you know what? Otani might have passed him in war now that I think about it. Just Although, in position player war or total war? No, his total war. Other... P- position player war, yeah. I don't think so, but total war, he probably no, has. Probably not. But well, 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 Matsui didn't come up until he was like how? Because this was his rookie season in two thousand three. Yes, so he was he um, was twenty nine when he came over. Twenty eight. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, his his peak was, uh, you know, probably over at yes. that point. So when at least he was the main part of it, and he still had like several great seasons. Yes. So when he was when he was in Japan, uh, he. He was a Hall of Famer in Japan. Like, he he basically hit, like, uh, I'm trying to see who... He basically hit, like, peak Manny Ramirez. His career slash line in NPB was 304, 413, 583. Um, and he was actually coming off of a 50-homer season in 2002 for the Yomiuri Giants when he came over. Other crazy thing about Matsui in Japan, he was primarily a center fielder. Like, I have no idea how good or bad his defensive metrics would have been. Um, obviously, I don't oh, yeah. have access a... to Delta Graphs. Like, when he came over here, he was primarily a left fielder and a designated hitter and was not a I good was say, left fielder, he, he from was what a, I remember He was right. a designated hitter. He was a designated hitter playing left field. Yeah, no, you're, and you're 100% right. <laughs> it was pretty right. obvious, yeah. too. I remember him being, like, obviously bad. In well, and he was, he was part of that 2005 Yankees team that has, like, the worst, what was it, like, the worst U- UZR or DRS ever yeah. recorded because they had him and Sheffield playing the outfield every day. That was largely what dragged it down, but it was that. And then Jeter was bad at shortstop. But anyway, so Matsui was a weirdly a center fielder in Japan primarily and hit like Manny Ramirez. So he was really, really, really good. Uh, and then when he came over here, definitely there was a drop off, but he was still quite productive um, had a 30 homer season in 2004, had a couple of 20 homer seasons, had a couple of 100 RBI seasons, uh, was an all-star a couple times. Uh, you don't hear quoting RBIs. You don't hear quoting RBIs. I'm so, just saying he, on. and it was a product of hitting in a, a loaded, of in a loaded lineup. <laughs> You're hitting like, sixth in the Yankees lineup in the 2000s. You better I mean, have 100 yeah, RBI. Yeah, like, you know, but like, <laughs> he's, he's driving guys in. He's, I don't know sure, what his, sure. what his clutch metrics are or aren't, or if that plays into it at all. I don't, we can I don't fight, know. We can fight over, I like, it's funny because like, I, I never even look at RBI. Like I have my custom fan graphs mm-hmm. stat sheet up here and RBI is not even close, not even on it. Like I was like, Oh, I, no, I, I scroll down. <laughs> I, I, RBI is a terrible way of evaluating player performance. I just, I, I find them aesthetically pleasing. Like they, they do like, yeah, they're baseball, yeah. they're baseball cards. Yes. They're like back of the card stats. Mm-hmm. They do look cool. When you got that guy, who has got the 30 plus and the hundred plus it is like, it hits a certain nostalgic thing for yeah. sure. But 
But no, Matsui was yeah. a really fun player. Um, he was good for pretty much his entire Yankees tenure. He was excellent. And then he yeah. uh, was... Got, I think hurt, he saw, got hurt some. Yeah, well, and by that point, by the time he left the Yankees, he was already in his mid-30s, so he kind of fell off pretty fast from there. Was Had a decentish season with the Angels as a 36-year-old. Um, and then... Uh, mm, yeah. went to Oakland and Tampa Bay and was bad with both of them. I have, and that no, was recollection. Of his I have no recollection of him being on the Rays. Like, I know he was. He played 34 here, games but... for them in 2012. <laughs> so yeah, was it wasn't bad. a whole lot. Yeah. Real bad. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, no, Matsui and... So is, he, so is he a Hall of Famer? So here's the thing. This is a good question. Yeah. I know he's probably in the Japanese Hall of Famer. He is. I actually think that we should consider... Ja- I don't know why we don't consider Japanese careers in the Hall of Fame. Because... When I look at a guy like Masui, he's the he's the dude that I'd be like, well, he should be in the Hall of Fame. We should have Japanese players in the Hall of Fame. That's what I'm saying. Well, and I in think general, especially especially if they played a significant part of their career in the United States. Sure. I feel like I feel like we should just consider their whole careers. Well, and I think with with Ichiro hitting the ballot next year, obviously he's going to get in. Um, but I think well, yeah, that he came potentially he came over at twenty. What was he? Twenty five or twenty six? And no, he was fifteen. So Ichiro was twenty seven. He was only two years younger than Matsui when he came over. He was twenty seven. Yeah, like he had all- played longer, and he'd already had more. a Hall of Fame career <laughs> in Japan, and then came over to the states and had a Hall of Fame career over here. Uh, yeah, like he, the real hit king. Yeah, no, I- Ichiro is. <laughs> Like, Ichiro was one of one. Like, he was a true unicorn in so many ways. But, like, he literally played from the time I was born until I'd been out of college for three years. Like, that's insane to even think about. That's almost 30 years. That's like Roger Clemens with me. Yeah, yep, exactly. His first year was in 1984, which is the year I was born. And then he retired in 2007. Ichiro was an 18-year-old rookie in 2002. But, yes, go ahead. Can I can I segue to to more Clemens talk? Yes, go ahead. So the big narrative about this game was that Clemens had just announced that he was probably maybe yes, probably almost definitely this. going to retire mm-hmm. after this season, where he then Brett farved it, which I'll get to in a second. But <laughs> uh, he uh, this was his, supposed to be his last regular season start. Yeah, they way, kept making that in that a point of that in the broadcast, it, and I know all the fans gave yeah. him a standing ovation too. Well, yeah, and so so that's what I was getting to is that the. So obviously he did pitch against them, I think at Fenway in the ALCS. But uh, you know this was the last for sure time. Like and 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 the games leading up to this, um, as he was sort of making his last rounds through the American League East and through other American League teams, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of fan bases were giving him standing ovations when he'd leave the the yard because he was so well respected. Right. I've never seen, and I could not think of another Yankee player <laughs> getting a standing ovation at Fenway Park. And I know that Roger Clemens is sort of one of one in terms of how he had significant and excellent careers with both teams, and he might be the one that has the best of both. You know, where he's was, was great because a lot of players have played for both, but you know, where most players were clearly better with one. Right. Like I think it's Roger Clemens and maybe wade boggs but he was obviously way better with the red yeah Sox. no i i would say uh, it's not way even longer close. yeah like boggs had a couple yeah, of so, nice seasons with the yankees but he was so much better with boston and he was old by the time he got yes to he was right? he'd been yep and so was clemens but it clemens didn't was too but he is. had bull testosterone pumping through his veins <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's just doing a lot of leg presses what are you talking about uh, eating his vegetables <laughs> yeah. every day lots of tomatoes <laughs> yeah and uh he 
yeah, so he him getting a standing ovation. I was actually, and again, this is it's so hard to divorce these dudes from the guys we right. remember and the people who they are. Right. But I remember like even just watching it today, just like wow, that was a touching moment. Like mm-hmm. him coming back out. And the Red Sox fans just adorning him, and they booed him like crazy through most of the games. Yes, they, they did. Were heckling him, you could hear you could hear the heckles from the crowd. I have some um, thoughts on some of the heckles. We can get to that later, but yeah, you uh, I, I, I didn't hear too hear much content. I just heard, I just heard a lot of Boston accents, and we we know where those probably come were, on, no man, no man, we lie. I like low key hate Boston, even though I'm going there in like a month, but. Or, well, a few months, but anyway, um, yeah, Clemens, Clemens getting the ovation is pretty cool. But, but just really quick, <laughs> like, so I was reading up a little bit on the news stories as like, you know, for researching this. Mm-hmm. And so we announced the retirement in in uh, July of two thousand three. He sort of somebody asked like, well, do you think you're going to play next year? And he said, I think his quote was something like, I don't think I am, but I'm not sure. And then later on, he kind of confirmed like, yeah, I'm definitely leading retirement. Of course, he didn't retire. Uh, in 2000, sorry, my girlfriend's getting very loud. Just give me a sec. It's distracting me. No, you're good. <laughs> sorry. I wish there was another time where I could do this, but you're good. I mean, I could on the weekend. We got less time, but, um, what was I saying? You were talking about, uh, Clemens and his deciding to not retire after yes. originally wanting to yeah so in 2004 in the winter 2004 he decided to go back to houston of course and again we don't want to get too far afield from this game and what happened Mm -hmm. in it but um he obviously ended up signing with the astros for one year and then he was definitely going to retire after 2004 and then they convinced him they offered him arbitration which was the way to get a compensation draft pick back then and uh he ended up he ended up settling for a record contract coming back in 2005 just pitching his ass off with the Astros. Yeah, he was uh, really 40s. good in Houston too. Really good, and then and then he uh, and then he was definitely going to retire. And in fact, did finally actually retire after 2005. And then in at the end of at the end of May, announced he was coming back. And he went back he to back the Yankees, I think. But he like and then went, yeah, his well, schedule yeah, was like really weird. And he like kind of pitched like a couple times, but it wasn't good. It was really weird. Yeah, no, in 2007, he came back and threw 17 starts. And oh, then wow. pitched in the postseason as well. Yeah, he pitched significant. Like, he wasn't as good, but he was on the postseason roster and, and pitching well That's in the wild. postseason in that year. Yeah. At 44. And that was, of course, the Susan Walden, he's back! Because he, like, showed up at a Yankees game in, like, <laughs> I don't know, June or something. He, like it's, it's really funny. He, like, shows up, and he's, you know, like, I think he's on top of the dugout or something. Well, wasn't he, like... And he's, like... Or he, he was like, leading out of a press box. That's what it was. Wasn't he, like, not and going with like, them on road trips? Like, he was only there for home games or something is what it was? Yeah, there was something weird. Yeah. But he was, like, leaning out of the press box and waving to people. And Susan Walden just being like, he's back. Roger's back. Like, just freaking out <laughs> that he was coming out of retirement. Yeah, that's 44 funny. years old. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, so this leads me to one of my trivia questions. Okay. Which I have two. Go for it. So... Roger Clemens was to retire after that season. Of course, he did not. Yes. Um, came back. And then he actually, like I said, came back in the Yankees in 2004. So this was not his last um, regular season start at Fenway. But how many more times in those four seasons after this season, not including the postseason, did Clemens pitch at Fenway Park between 2004 and 2007? <sighs> 
How many times? Just take just a wild guess on that one. Uh, how about two? No, he won one time. One time. <laughs> okay. Only one time did he pitch at Fenway, and I think you're right. I think he mostly pitched home games yeah. in that 2007 season, and that was the only time. The Astros, uh, I don't think, even came to Boston. Yeah, because I was going to say, because the interleague play would have probably prevented him from going over there. Yeah, I think they played Boston. He didn't. He didn't pitch against right. them, but I think they played Boston uh, at one point, but he didn't pitch. But yeah, he did. Uh, he pitched on September 16th, 2007, uh, I think, in the last possible game he could have played there Joe Torre put him out there and uh, let him pitch one last time at Fenway so it was really just the one time so mm-hmm. even though they were like making a lot of big deal about it this was the last regular season start it kind of was <laughs> except for that like four years later he yeah, did it again one time uh, but also amazing that it was four years later yeah no that's he crazy. just farved his way through that whole yeah, whole section it was really bizarre yeah so Let's talk about, uh, there's a couple things I want to bring up on uh, the Boston side of things. Um, so, for starters, uh, Nomar Garciaparra was one of my favorite players when I was a kid. Um, I was very confused by him at first because I'm like, his name is Nomar. Is he related to Omar Vizquel? Because their first names rhymed. I was not a bright child. Gosh, uh, you, were, you were so young. <laughs> but uh, now, and there were a lot of times that I remember playing. Uh, I don't know what baseball game it would have been, but I, I would actually swap him and Omar Vizquel on Cleveland. Um, and my reasoning was like, well, their names are basically the same. It's almost the same player, right? When in fact it was not, because Nomar always hit much, 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 much better than Vizquel did. Um, but uh, yeah, he's kind of an interesting peak versus you know career uh when discussing the hall of fame just absolutely crazy good start to his career uh 97 through 2000 he was insanely good uh i don't know if we value it the same way today because a lot of it was predicated on batting average but he was still getting on base at a good clip he played good defense at shortstop um he could hit for power and then, yeah, he just got destroyed by injuries. Because it was... He did something to his wrist. I think he broke it, maybe, in 2000 or, like, 2001. Only played in 21 games in 2001. Came back in 02 and 03 and was good, but not anywhere near as good as he'd been previously. And then, in 04, he just was not the same guy. They end up trading him, finally win the World Series without him, and then just kind of bounced around after that he was with the cubs was with the dodgers went to oakland of all places and then just ended up retiring well they all everybody's everybody's got to go to oakland for their age 36 season that's just that's just the law i mean yeah <laughs> if you were it's, good, it's pretty normal if you were good in your age 26 season you have to go to oakland in your yeah age 36 it's kind of required just, especially at that time that was like mm-hmm. that's how they, they they tried to revive and did successfully revive that's how they sold tickets yeah but it, and it worked it used to work for them right used yep. to be, really good people like frank thomas going there and well and frank thomas was like actually ass. good when he went to oakland too yeah he was very good yeah, with exactly. oakland. uh nomar was not but uh, yeah nomar nomar that really it's the run between 97 and 03 because yeah. like beside for that one season in 01 is like the wars there you know in the mm-hmm. sixes and sevens and then even those last two seasons you know five and six so he really uh he's kind of chase utley like in that way except that 
Chase Utley, I think, just did it a little longer. Yeah, <laughs> like he now actually, Chase, he Chase Utley, healthy long enough. Yeah, Chase Utley, but the Chase was, Utley was, was healthy for longer. I think Chase Utley was better at his peak. Like Nomar had oh, yeah, more, yeah, I mean, more the, sexy the, looking surface stats, probably, but Utley's actual value was much higher. Um, oh yeah, like we we talked about that in the last, I think, the last episode, mm-hmm. or maybe yeah, my, I might have cut it out. No, we we brought it up in, and I I only know this because I was listening to uh, part of that episode earlier, um, you know, because I love to hear myself talk. Oh, the second episode? Yeah, the second episode. uh, Your trivia question was about Ray Ordonez. I did cut out a, yeah, I I did cut out a a significant uh, portion of our conversation about Chase Utley. We uh, we mentioned him, though, at that point. Yeah. Anyway. um, But yeah, Yeah, no, I always really liked Nomar. Nomar was good. Uh, Nomar was good. Uh, this was Ortiz's breakout season, actually. It was. Um, it was his first year with Boston. Yeah. Probably the best free agent signing from a pure value standpoint of, like, dollars per war of what they signed him for versus what they got. Obviously not the best free agent signing ever or anything like that. There's much better signings besides this. But getting a guy that had been dfa like, on the cheap, who then turned into, like arguably the best hitter they've had in Boston after Ted Williams, maybe, you know, if you're not including Manny, like I, well, I mean, I think in terms of the value he brought to the Red Sox, I think, I don't know. I haven't looked at that, but I think Ortiz was probably better overall. I also think Um, there's something poetic to Boston only finally breaking their curse after they embraced a player of color for what it's worth. Yeah. Multiple. Yes, Pedro Martinez, mm-hmm. Manny yep. Ramirez. Yeah, I mean whether or not the city did, probably not. Uh, fucking Boston. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, like David Ortiz is. Uh, so just so I have some observations as I always do. For sure. My partner and or roommate, just uh, real quick on on Ev's observation on uh, upon learning uh, that David Ortiz's nickname was Big Poppy, she looked at him in the batter's box, squinted her eyes, and said, "I would." And then walked out of the room. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and also Te- Tessa's observation was uh, Roger Clemens is very licky. Actually, what she said was the big one there, number twenty-two. He's really licky, uh, as in he was like licking his lips a lot. That's funny. And he was, and then I, cu- I couldn't unsee it. From and then that you couldn't not see that. Yeah, gross. <laughs> yeah, that's why we bring them in. You know, they have the good observations. Yes, good, good partial observations um something else i wanted to bring up too speaking of observations so obviously uh, kevin millar uh was in this game something that i've always found hilarious about kevin millar he looks better now and has looked better in post-retirement than he ever did as a player like i don't know why he just always looked like this schlub well, off the street or like a biker and like, Part of that is because you're allowed to take steroids once you're out of baseball. You're not allowed, but it's easy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think part of it, too, is this is the uh, one of the observations I was going to bring up. This was like a peak 2003 facial hair game. On yes. The so just like obviously the Yankees couldn't because, you know, yeah. weird. No facial hair. But like Millar had that like Fu Manchu handlebar. Yeah, he guy had like a Hulk Hogan stash rock going on. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. Trot Nixon Trot had like Nixon, the yes. Ugh, terrible. David McCarty had one. Well, like, and there was even a, there was Ortiz, at this point in time, it was before he had the full beard. He had more of, like, this weird, like, chin strap going on. Like, it was like a pencil-thin yeah, chin did, strap. Yeah. It was 
it was this something. This was peak, peak goatee time, man. I, I listen. I didn't. I didn't get out on skates. I had a goatee at this point in my life too. <laughs> Definitely had a goatee in two thousand three. It was a rough time. We don't, need to, we don't need to talk about it. I, uh, I at one point had a had a Koch. Like this is probably only relevant to Blue Jays fans. But Billy Koch, the uh, former Blue Jays closer, oh, had like, a I know what you're talking about. Down his chin. I had that for a while because I liked Billy Koch. And I was into <laughs> That's metal, so uh, That's fantastic. <laughs> like, yeah. Then I went to goatee, and then with some sideburns, like goatee and sideburns. I had the real combos going. Nice. Um, and then I and then I finally realized that it should probably just go full beard, and I've been there ever since. But yeah, no, this was like peak facial hair, peak two thousand three bad facial hair time. In, yes. On the Red Sox in this game, just re- even Tim Wakefield, I think, had a goatee. Everyone had a fucking goatee. Yeah. And the, and the goatee didn't look that great on Wakefield either. It didn't look great on anyone. It's a goatee. I mean, name me yeah. one person has looked good on. <laughs> um, what was I gonna say? <laughs> oh, Kevin like... Millar also baseball scab. Fuck him anyway. Oh yeah, that's right. I always forget that about him. Yeah, mm-hmm. fuck him. And like honestly, the other thing about Kevin Millar is that he might be the most annoying human being on the earth. Uh like, yes, just, he like, is. Obviously, he's he still does intentional talk. I think doesn't he? I don't. I I, I think it's it's him because they got. I I don't know what the whole story was, but Chris Rose got the boot from that some years ago because it had been the yeah, two of them for the Boy. longest time. And yeah, now he's on John Boy because apparently that's a legitimate network now. Which <laughs> okay, sure, internet. Um, but uh, I mean, it's weird. I have like a weird mixed opinion about John Boy, which I feel like is what everybody I Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm I'm the same way. They're they're Yankees homers, which can get annoying, and they have a weird adjacent relationship with Barstool, which is not great. But some of their analysis is actually halfway decent. So it's it's And weird. John Boy's pretty funny and he does some cool things with yeah. the lip reading and Yeah, his breakdowns of games I actually think are great because like the reason I know that he they think ultimately they're good for baseball until they turn out to be like fascist or something. Uh they like is that they? I can show a John Boy video to a non-baseball my, my fan. Yes, exactly. Yeah, or, or or Evelyn and like they both love it. They're like, "Wow, baseball is cool." Like, yeah, no, it's like, it, it yeah, makes okay. for John Boy might be valuable. Compelling then. viewing. <laughs> yep. No, I agree. Yeah. So, um, so just observation about Gabe Kapler, uh, Kapler, Kapler. Mm-hmm. Uh was and remains an absolute tank yeah just well they talk about <laughs> they talk about how johnny damon missed this game because he was hurt because he ran into kapler in the outfield he ran into he ran into yeah. kapler and, and he talks then he about ran into the, it, like he yeah he, he ran into kapler and then the wall then, yeah yeah and and he they i guess the reporters were asking damon if it hurt that he hit the wall or he said it hurt more that he hit kapler yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, just an absolute tank. Remains so well into his forties as yeah. a manager. Is you look at that guy and it's like, what? Do you eat anything other than eggs? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, no, he is. He is like scarily built. Like humans yeah. should not look like that at his age, but he does. So it makes you question what he's doing to look like that at his age. Uh, but also really, really obvious how baseball is different. Um, knuckleballer yes i uh... we need we need we need a new uh torchbearer for the knuckleball and honestly i i always say this i am still so surprised with all the tracking and pitching tech that we have now that some failed prospect 
who blew out his arm, hasn't gone to driveline, built a knuckleball in a lab, and then tried it. Like, I just... I would think yep. that someone would be able to basically, like, reverse engineer the perfect knuckleball and make a career out of it at this point. But apparently it's much harder than that because no one's done it yet. Because yeah. I, I would think at I'm this point, it's... if it was doable, someone would have done it and tried it. It's also just... It, I think it gets harder the more velocity goes up. That, like, it's just... It's hard to throw in... Like, when Ari Dickey threw his knuckleball somehow in the low 80s, that's not normal. Right. Now, part of why he did uh, like what he did was because he threw a hard knuckler, like, way yeah, harder which than is it not, should be. That's even less possible. Like, yeah. if you look at Wakefield's, his was, like, in the high 60s. And it, it that, I feel like it almost doesn't matter if it's if the movement is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. In today's game, where guys are throwing 100, I just I think it doesn't work. I just think that's the... I don't think it's that we... You can't find someone who's good at it i just think it just doesn't work in the high below yeah because i mean guys are trained to a point now like if you're throwing a fat fastball it doesn't matter how hard you throw it if it doesn't have you know good movement on it and i think right. the knuckleball kind of works in reverse where you know you 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 have to be throwing it at a certain speed for it to even approach being effective yeah yeah, I just I just think guys are geared to velocity too much for yeah. it to work now. Um, I mean, maybe that's wrong, and maybe we'll find out that it's just extraordinarily hard to do. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that we don't even know of any, there's not even I don't think there's any knuckleballers currently in any affiliated baseball. I don't think the it's last about, one like, that they talked about was uh, who is it? That Orioles pitcher, Mickey Janice. Yeah, Mickey Janice. I know it was right. really funny. Side tangent about him. Um, in MLB The Show, when he got called up, everybody started using him in Diamond Dynasty yeah. because no one could hit his fucking knuckleball. And they actually had to yeah. nerf his player card because it became so predictable in the meta. It, it was really funny. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah, but uh, but Wakefield, quite an excellent knuckleballer. Like, yes, very good. I feel good. like he, he doesn't... I don't know. It's weird because it feels like the second he retired, everybody forgot about him. I don't know. Like... Like, Dickey had a more compelling story, I think, because he came up as a traditional pitcher with no UCL and was this weirdo guy who... Didn't he also have and... some kind of, like, background trauma or something? I know he wrote a book yeah, about it yeah. at so some he was, point. He was a victim of childhood sexual abuse and, like... Oh, you know, yeah, that's what it definitely was. Not, definitely not the typical sort of athlete no. story in yeah. terms of how he's, like, circuitous way he got to the majors. And then for him to fail as a guy throwing 93-94... And then, and come, then come back, back as, as this, a knuckleballer. Like, well, and he's also yeah, not, and not just a knuckleballer, but again, like a I said, good, a effective throwing, knuckleballer. Like, yeah, and he yeah, was insane. he was the first and only knuckleballer too who ever won a Cy Young, for for whatever yeah. that's worth. Yeah, and and Wake, but Wakefield was pretty good for a long time, like never an ace or anything, but mm-hmm. like a perfectly usable starting yeah. pitcher and a times relief pitcher, uh, which is weird. But yeah, Wakefield. Uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun watching him pitch, too, because he, he pitched actually pretty well in this game. He had a couple of bad innings, but, like, otherwise, like, the middle innings of the game, he was pretty yeah. damn dominant. And uh, was actually striking out more guys than Roger Clemens, which is kind of funny. He yeah, made, no, that was he made funny. Posada, he made Posada look absolutely foolish at one point. And so this is my other trivia question for you. Sure. Um, so I saw Posada look terrible against wakefield a couple of times in this game and i was like huh i wonder how he did in his career against against wakefield turns out pretty well he actually like hit him pretty well hit like five home runs off of him Mm -hmm. but the important thing was that he posada actually faced wakefield more than any other pitcher 
in his career by a lot. <laughs> he faced Wakefield 83 times, and uh, the next highest pitcher he faced 69 times. Um, nice. But Scott, yeah, yeah. But Scott Brady. Uh, so, given that you know that Jorge Posada had faced Tim Wakefield more than any other pitcher, can you name anyone else in the top five of pitchers that Jorge Posada faced? So I mentioned the second one was at 69. Um, can you name any like two through five? Can you name anyone on that list? Hmm. Let's see here. I would have to think it would be another NL East pitcher, possibly with the Red Sox. Um, hmm. How about... Oh, part of me wants to say Mucina because of his early years with the Orioles, but I don't think that would go no, work. The, no, the crossover wasn't yeah. there. By the time Posada was up, he was already a Yankee. Or no, not really, but like... How about Pedro? Very much. Pedro was number two. Nice okay, work. he was the that he was sixty nine times. So who else in that top five? Can you get anyone else? Mm. I feel like one of them. If you thought about it, one of them you could get, and the other two you will never get. <laughs> what about Halliday? You got number three. Halliday was number three at okay. sixty eight. Yep. Uh, um, the other two guys, I feel like you, there's almost no way. But maybe I don't know. We've actually mentioned uh, one of the one of these two guys, Todd Stottlemyre. Actually, you know what? We mentioned both of these guys. We mentioned both of these guys very briefly on this podcast in in the first uh, two episodes. I think we mentioned them both in the first episode, actually. I just said Todd Stottlemyre. I doubt that's it, but no, it was okay. not Stottlemyre. No. Uh, Sorry, was it the guy with the White Sox from the second game? I I doubt it. Uh, no, James no, nobody Baldwin? we've seen. Okay, no one we've seen. It's only people we've mentioned. No, well, actually, okay. someone we have seen. Someone we have seen very briefly in oh. the dugout, and someone. <laughs> uh, actually, no, it? that wouldn't. I was gonna say uh, David Wells, but we actually saw him pitch. No, he wasn't in the dugout. No, we haven't seen either of these pitch yet. However, we are going. One of them. So one of them we saw briefly in the dugout of one of the games, and the other one uh, we mentioned because we're eventually going to do a game that this guy's pitching. Probably soon. Mm. I feel like this is a bad podcasting, so I should just tell you the answers. I'm I'm drawing a blank here. I just go so for it. So number four, number four is Sidney Ponson at 63. He's the guy that uh, pitched for the Orioles for quite a while. It was never great, but just sort of okay. Yeah, and, I would not uh, have. I would not have gotten that. <laughs> yeah, Ponson, Ponson, we're probably going to watch an Expos-Orioles game in the next few episodes uh, at at the Big O, where Ponson is pitching for the Orioles. Nice. And the other one is Jamie Moyer, 52. Oh! And we, we saw Jamie Moyer very briefly in the first... I might have cut that part out of the podcast now that I'm thinking about it, but I mentioned that uh, there was a Jamie Moyer sighting. He was in the dugout for the Orioles and was just kind of walking around. Cause that that does that kind day, of but... make sense, considering how long Jamie Moyer played for, now that I think about it. Well, that was 1994. <laughs> it was crazy. Like, what the... And then he pitched, in, he pitched until he... I mean, yeah, Jamie Moyer pitched for yeah. literally ever. So <laughs> he pitched until he was like... What, yeah, I guess you're right. I'm like, no, he would have pitched in 94. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah, he was well into his career in 1994. <laughs> yeah, I think he was probably yeah, already, no. like, in his 30s or something by that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, thinking of Jamie Moyer on the Orioles, like, I don't remember him on the Orioles. No, I only remember him on the Mariners, and I, I know he was on he the Cubs He started pitching in 1986. <laughs> that is insane. 
Yeah, he was 31 years old in 1994. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. He pitched a full nine seasons by that, by that point. Mm-hmm. Too funny. Pitched until he was 49 years old in 2012. <laughs> Just bonkers. Yeah, he was He the, was on the obviously. Phillies at that point. I always remember that. He was on the 2012 Phillies well, the still last, pitching. The last, no, the 2012 he was on uh, the Rockies, actually. Oh, God. 20, 20, 2010, he was on the Phillies. He didn't pitch in twenty. He was on the 2012 19. Rockies. How did he not, like... 20... How, how did he survive? <laughs> like... I mean, he kind of didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he did. I don't know. It's in 10, 10 starts at a 570 ERA, which, you know... You know what? For fine. for like a for a guy in his mid-40s for... pitching in cores, that's, that's impressive. Honestly. Like... Dude, he turned fifty later that year. Oh my god! Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> like, impressive. I'll, I'll I'll give him he's that. The Julio Franco of pitchers. Yeah, like no, just, good good job, going. Jamie Moyer. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm gonna get it. it's just a All little right. little tangent, little tangent there. But uh, yeah, so there's uh, Jorge Posada faced Tim Wakefield more than any other pitcher by far. Which I get, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense. I just yes. I'm not sure that I would have gone with Wakefield if you given me. 10 guesses i would right. have picked a red Sox. yeah but i would i don't know that i would have picked wakefield, wakefield i probably would have got right. to pedro and yeah Halliday pedro makes first. sense yeah Halliday too or even i would, might have guessed someone like i don't know kurt schilling even though it doesn't really make sense um yeah i could someone a little more notable but sure. but wakefield being way up there and yeah he fared pretty well so he just had a bad game against against wakefield but he uh, in his career actually played pretty well against him yeah anyway uh, we're at about an hour, so I, I was gonna say, yeah, I've, you have... I think I've hit all the points I wanted to hit. Biggest thing was, uh, um, I don't know, there were players in this game that I liked, that I enjoyed watching in their careers, and pretty much touched on everyone. Uh, I guess Alfonso Soriano. Um, I'll just bring him up here. Yeah. Uh, he was a fun one that I liked watching. Uh, fun fact: he also played for my favorite NPB team, the Hiroshima Carp, for a very small window yeah, of time. Right before getting poached by the Yankees. Um, yeah, that's right. He was one of those guys who who went to Japan as a way to speed up his entry into the U.S., right? Wasn't that I, how, why he did that? No, actually. So he was... The CARP had opened up, like, an academy for... Uh, I, I think it was... Where's Soriano from? Is he from the Dominican? Yes, he is. So yeah, they yeah. opened up an academy for Dominican players, like a, like a player pipeline. And... He had gotten almost no playing time with the Carp. I, I'm assuming it was because, uh, you know, like Japanese, like old time Japanese baseball men, uh, can be very uh, finicky with giving foreigners playing time, um, especially, especially dark skinned foreigners. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if that was part of it. Problem. Yes, no, they and they 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 seriously do, um, but. Uh, yeah, so, and I don't know the whole vehicle of how he then went from the cart to the Yankees. I think the Yankees had to purchase him, and then I know he went to their farm team for a bit. And it's it's interesting, because I've always wondered if he had gone elsewhere, if they just would have stuck him at shortstop instead of second base. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he was always a fun player that I liked watching. I him being a good second baseman, though, because they, they moved in, he obviously in his 30s moved to the outfield, but... Um... Yeah, no, Soriano was a fun player. I always mm-hmm. loved his swing. He always felt he had yes. a swing that was very cool batting stance. And very yes. different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just when he hit a ball, it was just very pleasurable to watch him hit home runs. Yes. Yeah, no, he... He's the word pleasurable. 
Well, he, he kind of had some fun one-handed pimp jobs on home runs, too, back before everyone yeah. was doing it. Um, yeah. Derek Jeter also played in this game. Um, Obviously. That's... Did okay, too. He had a double and a... Yeah. Well, I guess a single and a thing. He, he played pretty well, but yeah. then he got hurt. I, uh, was oblique. I liked Derek Jeter when I was a kid, as most kids who watched baseball did that weren't Red Sox yeah, fans, probably. Yourself, friend. Yeah, no. Speak for yourself, you, friend. You probably wouldn't care for him. <laughs> or Blue Jays fans. We hate the Yankees, too. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, no, I hated Derek Jeter. Hated him. Oh, my God. Like, I can respect him as a player, but sure. hated him. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Which isn't the case for a lot of these Yankees players. Like, was it a soft spot for Johnson and Giambi and Matsui and yeah. Masada and Bernie Williams? I loved Bernie Williams. Yes. Bernie yeah, Williams is like, very good. Even though they were fun. on the Yankees and I had to curse them a lot. <laughs> it's hard not to love Bernie Williams. Yes. Um, but yeah, I I think we pretty much touched on everything here. Unless there were anything else you had to go on at that point. Um, yeah, I was just going to mention that Soriano. Uh, he actually went on it. So he was benched the previous two games, and I tried to find out why. They kind of alluded to him. It sounded like it was because they said he struggled against Pedro and against Wakefield, but like that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But he, he, but he was also sad the game before that, too. So, like, I don't know, like, if he was in the doghouse or something. Or, it was it was weird, too, because player. on the broadcast, uh, Orsillo and Remy said that he was having a down year that season. And, like, he put he up wasn't. almost he the exact same numbers but, he did the previous year. I, I wonder well, so if he had I, a hot I was, September, But what maybe. I was going to say, well, that's, that's literally what I was just going to yeah. say. He hit 10 home runs in September and went absolute bananas but uh okay. he had still was having a good year at that point so, yeah 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 i don't know weird one the, the yankees yankees and yankees uh like joe torrey had a problem with with soriano i was thinking about this when uh, i was watching another game again not to bring it back to the blue jays but cito gaston was another one of those guys he decided he didn't like somebody they got kind of railroaded out of town like he kind of mm. did it with john Olerud and sean green and a few other players that were like great he yeah, let's get rid of it. all these borderline Hall of Famers and see how we do. Yeah, it's not get, like we won't be good these, for like, a decade two the, afterward. Two of the nicest swings and left-handed batters I've ever had. Like, let's just get rid of them. Yeah, um, who needs that? But yeah, like Tor- we've Tori got this could be Lyle like Overbay right here. Tory could be like that too. At least uh, in the early part of his early and middle middle part of his Yankees career. Like, if he decided he didn't like someone, it was going to be hard for them to break through. And Soriano was kind of one of those guys. He just didn't. I remember him not liking him and like benching him at every given opportunity which is always weird to me because it's like, yeah that's so kid, weird though. yeah anyway yeah i think that's it um so i guess we'll wrap up by doing the what are we going to do next do we have we even decided this yet what we're going to do next i know there's a couple games we talked about um i know i brought up the reds giants game um that i had previewed i know we've talked about doing an expos one a couple times um didn't, didn't we want to do like a late like 2008 2009 game yeah i think it'd be fun if we did one later next. in the 2000s potentially too whatever yeah, it is we'll 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 put it in well, the I, link. I well i want i want to say it here so we can preview it so let's just take mm-hmm. a second we'll uh sure i'll cut this out um where's our where's our boy I've got the page pulled up here. Uh, let's see what we got. Got anything in the 2006 to 2009 range? I want to find two teams we haven't watched yet. Yeah, because I, I really want to do the Expos game because it's a it's a fun game for a lot of reasons, but it's against the Orioles, who we've already done. 
Yeah. Um, so we might have to wait a bit on that one and maybe find a different Expos one. But Cardinals Braves, July twentieth, two thousand seven. That's a recent one that he just posted. Cardinals Braves, July twentieth. There's also Dodgers Cardinals, August six, two thousand eight. Uh, what else have we got here from the late Let's go with that one. Let's go with that. Let's not overthink this. Let's yeah. go Dodgers-Cardinals. So, was, uh, say that again. Was it uh, Dodgers at Cardinals? Dodgers at Cardinals, August 6, 2008. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that one. Why not? We'll do that one. Yes. Uh, we'll leave the link in the show notes for that, and obviously we'll leave the link to you know the one we're doing now if you want to go back and watch it. Uh, we'll, leave the show note, we'll leave in the show notes a link to the baseball reference page um, also you can follow us on twitter at coaxbaseball you can email us at coaxbaseball at proton.me you can find Scott on instagram with his artistic talents uh, instagram.com slash art underscore by underscore scott underscore 92 did I get that right? yes you did, buy my stuff Perfect. I like money buy his stuff, give him money give yes, me please. money too I guess I have to nothing. pay for just I have like to g- give us both money. I I have to pay for a wedding in several months though, so more money, please. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna need that. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, yeah. So what else? What else? What else? We got uh, at Coax Baseball on Twitter. I think I said that. Mm-hmm. I did say that. I think um, we touched everything. I feel like there was something else. Oh yeah. I mean, if you if you encounter us on Twitter or wherever you encounter us, just help us out by you know retweeting us, talking about us a little bit. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a review. Yes. Or anywhere you can give a review to podcasts. By the way, we are up on everything now. We are up we on everything. That. We're up on, I believe, every major platform now. I think there might be one. Radio Public, I think we're not on yet. But who the fuck uses Radio Public? Get out of here. Um, yeah, we're up on all the other ones. We're up on Apple. We're up on Google. We're up on Spotify. All that stuff. So go find us. And if, if you're uh, listening to us on Spotify because you think we're not on the other ones yet, go find the other one. You know? Uh, what else, Scott? I feel like there was something else I was going to say here. Because uh, I'm always bad at this. I think you touched everything. I, I think we're all, all set right. here. Oh, I touched everything, all right. Okay, I get out of here before I start getting gross. <laughs> all right. <laughs> See you later, Scott. Bye.